You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. I'm speaking today with Daniel Want, who is the Chief Investment Officer at Prerequisite Capital Management over in Australia. I was introduced to Daniel via Grant Williams, and subsequently I've learned a lot from him due to his understanding of complex systems. Prerequisite is a firm which provides financial advisory and portfolio management services to sophisticated individuals, high net worth individuals, and family offices. I recorded a conversation that I had with Daniel, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You know, your understanding of complex systems, I think it's really incredible. One of the things that I've always looked at is this fact that we live in a dynamic world, in accepting that human behavioral psychology is such that we extrapolate things on a linear basis because that comforts us. Mm. And you clearly don't do that. You, you look at so many different aspects around any market and I think that's really, really valuable. So one of the things that, you know, we chatted about this before is LIBOR. And I wanted to ask some of your thoughts on that. You know, I had a conversation with a friend over in the UK just on the weekend and with just over a million dollars in liquid assets, he was able to go to the commercial banks um, and get a uh, a loan on real estate, a piece of real estate that he wanted to buy. And so instead of getting a mortgage, he could utilize his equity portfolio as collateral. And he got what was basically LIBOR plus just over 2%. That's right. Much, much better than um, a mortgage, right? Mm. And it started me thinking, because I've been paying a lot of attention to LIBOR, and it started me thinking how many larger, I mean, he's an, He's a um, sophisticated investor, um, and he's you know I actually worked with him years back at JP Morgan, so he understands that whole space pretty well. But and the average guy may not, but certainly within the sort of commercial space, there's a lot of I suspect there's a lot of uh, people utilizing equities as collateral. And then when I kind of think through how that little chain works. Any rise in, and I had this discussion with this friend of mine, any rise in LIBOR then causes, you know, my friend's payments to go up. And, of course, at the same time, because that collateral is, you know, based on LVR, if he's, depending on his leverage, let's assume that he's fully leveraged um, based on that loan that he's taken, he's now, he now needs to post margin. And he can't post margin by selling his real estate because it's a liquid. So he's going to sell the stocks, which are his collateral, in order to uh, bring that LVR back into line. And then, you know, if 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 you think that through on a on a, a broader basis with a lot of commercial players that are in that same sort of space, then it makes a lot of sense to me as to why central banks have been so terrified of letting asset values fall because then you'd have this, this knock-on effect where you'd have sellers trying to you know, meet margin calls, 
equities get hit, which of course are forming the backbone of that same collateral. Um, and, you know, so the recent spike that we've seen in LIBOR may matter more than, you know, a simple risk off in the interbank lending market. Um, and I was curious, you know, what are your thoughts on this connectivity and how important do you believe LIBOR to be? Yeah, well, um, you know, a simple short answer is not normally what I'm renowned for. Um, Give me the long one then. Yeah, I mean, years ago when I ran, started running down rabbit holes with regards to all of this sort of non-traditional, you know, more wholesale markets and funding and shadow banking systems and all this sort of thing, you know, besides obviously being a very sobering experience with what you find and what you learn, um, you also realise that so many of these structures in the way those dynamics work and play out, they're still all very pro-cyclical and all the rehypothecation that happens and in exactly that, you know, sort of microcosm of a synopsis that you, you just articulated, you know, that is still writ large through most of that entire world. Um, you know, the million dollar question is, um, you know, obviously trying to decipher signal from noise and, and get a sense around the capital that is flowing in there and how that capital is formed um, because that will determine largely whether, you know, in the bigger scheme sort of cycle of things, whether we are, you know, heading into an unwind or whether this is a, a temporary sort of counter trend um, move in that whole system sort of holding up in, in all its funding structures and collateral structures and things. And so, you know, when you were referencing loosely all that complex system sort of paradigm, one of the big precepts there, obviously everything is interrelated and to a degree interdependent um, in different ways. But one of the things you learn studying complex systems is that there is a, uh, a simplicity to it. So in, in a sense, you can take, a, if, if you take between 10 to 15 of the key features of a system um, as it is operating, you know, you might call them symptoms or whatever, but if you've got 10 to 15 of the main ones and you start to drill down how they're all connected and interrelated, you will start to arrive at a fairly core picture you know a core handful of drivers that then explain or influence those the, the 10 to 15 larger symptoms or features of that system and so you know when in physics when they're studying the world what they're trying to do is you know understand the world better you know to reduce the number of variables that actually explain what is happening in the world and how it works and so when we are looking at, you know, especially at a global sort of context, how this sort of funding system and liquidity system sort of works around the world, you know, we, we have many features and many sort of symptom observations we can make. And when we look at LIBOR type things, then that's just another feature of that broader system. And so any individual feature or signal, you know, might not necessarily be that significant in isolation, but when you start to see a confluence 
of say signals or th those key sort of features of the system all starting to shift in their behavior that's when you know that you're um, potentially shifting into a new regime or a new set of conditions uh, in in how conditions are reinforcing themselves you know and loosely you could describe that as a change in the cycle so to speak but it really what it is 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 you know further shifting into more of a regime's shift where the core fundamental underlying drivers that are self-reinforcing um, these dynamics, which then express themselves in the major trends you see in, in say the asset markets and currency markets and things, you know, is that core dynamic or that core reinforcing dynamic is that shifting? So I guess it's kind of like that adage of one, um, one bud doesn't make it spring. And yeah, exactly. So if you have a multiple multitude of buds, then you can ascertain that it's most likely spring. And so it's looking for a number of different factors and they need not all be the same, you know, buds. They could be, you know, a number of different uh, factors that would indicate that it's spring that can give you the probability that it is actually spring. Yeah, yeah, precisely. I mean, the more you try and... You know, I, I always try not to be that, that guy with a hammer to whom everything looks like a nail. So I'm trying to have a multitude of different tools and, and ways to measure things and different dynamics of that broader system. And one of the things I've, I've found is that when you have, you know, a large toolbox and, and a large array of ways to observe the system uh, and measure different dynamics, in this case, we're talking about sort of global liquidity and funding conditions, you know, each individual tool in isolation will only kind of allow you to glimpse what the reality might be. You know, it has an information content to itself, but in isolation, it's not as meaningful as when you sort of view multiple tools or mul from multiple perspectives. When you start glimpsing the similar sort of underlying reality, you know, a picture starts to come into, into focus there. Yeah. And so what I'm seeing in, um, you know, for example, like the LIBOR type interbank uh, funding markets and, and all that are very consistent with a lot of the other ways I try to look at and measure, you know, global liquidity um, pools and flows and circulation and all this sort of thing. One of the hardest things to do um, in the world is actually try to, you know, Deming has an old precept uh, that, you know, if you can't measure something, you can't manage it or you can't improve it. And, um, you know, trying to measure and gauge the fullness of the dynamics around liquidity in the world is, is a very tricky thing and it's quite an elusive target. Symptomatically, you can create all sorts of ways of measuring you know, the quantity and degrees of tightness and demand and circulation and all this sort of thing of global liquidity and pools and flows and things. But you cannot have a definitive, um, you know, simple little data metric that will, you know, you can summarize that whole system with. Um, but you can create an array of tools and an array of ways to measure all these different things, uh, which when you put it all together in some sort of a, a systems analysis framework, 
you can start to glimpse that underlying reality and those core drivers, which tend to be surprisingly few. Um, you know, so that complexity actually starts to become less and you start to be able to put your finger on those core underlying drivers, which tend to explain most other things. And when you've got those core dynamics right, you know, surprises in the world become less and less because things that happen and the symptoms in the system and way it evolves should naturally just be an outworking of those core dynamics that are reinforcing. And if ever you see, say, a, a surprise that sincerely is a surprise, so a symptom or the system operating or doing something you didn't expect, that's a red flag to, um, you know, you better look into that a little bit to just make sure that that core underlying dynamic, that core system structure, so to speak, hasn't, isn't breaking down or isn't shifting. Um, the really surprising element about this whole system's thinking and systems analysis type framework a way of viewing the world is that it actually helps you to eliminate hell of a lot of possible scenarios as to where the, the world or this current system might be able to actually morph into all right i when i first started out especially with this sort of systems way of analyzing and thinking about the world um i used to think you know wow, you know, you'd be able to sit down and create literally five to ten or more different scenarios as to how this world or this system structure, you know, could morph into. Um, the reality is, funnily enough, is that it's more like if you can come up with even up to three ways, different, materially different scenarios that this system could adapt into, then you know, you, you're hitting the, the limits. Normally there's only one higher probability scenario that this system can evolve into. Um, and the million dollar question then is just trying to better understand that process of change and, and adaptation. Um, now this all sounds probably a little bit too theoretical and all this sort of stuff in terms of getting like a practical understanding of this sort of systems thinking and, and ways of anal analyzing uh, the world like this. Um, I've found a whole realm of um, study called constraint theory. Um, it's spearheaded actually by an Israeli physicist like 30 years ago who went into more business management type applications of all this sort of complex systems analysis and thinking type approaches uh, to driving results. Uh, his name was um, Goldratt or Elihu Goldratt and he wrote a couple of books about constraint theory and, you know, systems thinking and, and all of this sort of stuff. Um, the goal and it's not luck being the two prominent ones. And then I was fortunate enough to have a mentor in all the systems thinking stuff who, in many ways kind of wrote the Bible, um, you know, when it comes to systems thinking and uh, complex systems analysis and problem solving and all this um, by the name of William Detmer, who wrote a book called uh, The Logical Thinking Processes uh, about 10 years ago or more. And anyway, those frameworks are, are incredibly powerful um, to sort of starting to understand how systems behave and evolve and how you analyze um, a complex system. Um, 
So Daniel, you mentioned an interesting thing with respect to having potentially sort of three outcomes as opposed to five and essentially finding almost pillars of um, information that you would be utilizing to, 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 to determine that. Hmm. Presumably one of those would be collateral. And, you know, you've made a statement before, and I can't remember where, where I saw it, might have been on Real Vision, and I'll try as best as I can to summarize it off the top of my head, but it was with respect to the period prior to the 2008 GFC, back from sort of, I think, um, the late 1900s, and the use of collateral in financial markets had, had been rising exponentially throughout that time frame up until the crisis of 2008, both in the US as well as other financial markets. And then since that crisis, we've seen a massive collapse in that collateral pool down from, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, it was sort of from around about 60% of GDP to somewhere around 30% of GDP today. Mm. And that collapse in collateral available in the system has resulted in this liquidity shortage What's causing that? What's causing that collapse in collateral? Yeah, well, there's a lot of ways to obviously try to measure that. That was a pretty useful sort of back of the envelope way of building it into a um, short presentation. But that dynamic is, you know, you can observe that in so many different ways. Now, what's causing the shrinkage of collateral? Um, well, first we need to step back and all collateral is is some form of an asset, right? And, um, you know, and obviously in this world and increasingly so one man's asset is another man's liability. It's all basically assets or cash. Now, what, how does this system create an asset is probably one of the more important questions or how does a system create quality collateral? Um, and basically you need a whole world of, you know, self-reinforcing processes, everything from reasonably stable property rights and uh, a stable sort of contract law environment and some mechanism of enforcing that and giving a bit of integrity to that, especially internationally. Uh, you also need, you know, market mechanisms that are actually ensuring capital is allocated in productive ways in the world and within economies, you know, and you need sort of those enablers of productivity growth um, to sort of then turbocharge all of these things. And, you know, there's other drivers as well, but largely, you know, stable property right sort of environments, productivity growth, um, you know, positive enabling type environments and market mechanisms that are ensuring, or at least enabling every so often, you know, capital be, to be allocated in the system to productive use. Um, you need those elements in place to actually have a broader global system to be able to expand and actually create assets, you know, what we would call assets and, and higher quality collateral that have some quality to them, you know, so they can um create and sustain returns and be productive above the the funding cost or the um you know cost to all of those you know the creation of those those assets those mechanisms that are structural from a, especially a multi-decade sort of 
perspective, they're all breaking down. And so the capacity to actually manufacture new high quality assets in a system globally and even within developed world markets are materially um, falling to pieces. Um, and so if we look for drivers of that particular breakdown in the collateral, we'd be looking at things such as regulation, whereby, uh, let's just take a very prime example. If you and I were to set up a business in Greece today, it's going to take us probably a, over a year to actually get up and running due to the myriad red tape issues that are involved in setting up a company and, and running it and then being compliant with all of the various pieces of red tape. And so that cost of entry to the market is substantially higher than it, it may have been 20, 50 years ago. So then that actual asset that we would bring to the table either doesn't get brought to the table or it gets, it's a longer time frame for it to be brought to the table. Um, and then subsequently, if we kind of go down that daisy chain and assume that we have set up our little business in, say, Athens, and we're selling flowers or whatever it is, and we're pretty successful, we wouldn't presumably take that particular company public if the regulations to actually doing so, again, are prohibitive. Yeah, it's absolutely. I mean, it's a hindrance to being productive. Exactly. By definition, so, if you're trying to swim across the English channel, it's it's hard to do that if you're going to have a bag strapped to your back that's progressively being filled up or is full of cement. You know, you become less productive and less likely to be able to even hit the goal. And in the end, if you're like, oh, man, I've got to swim across, you know, some stretch of water, some body of water, you know, in order to be productive. But I've got to do that knowing that I'm going to have half a bag of cement on my back, you know, some people will just give up and not even try it or go to something else, something easier and ultimately less productive. And those few that are brave and strong enough or crazy enough to, to give it a go are going to have a, have to work doubly hard to be able to just achieve the basic degree of productivity that, that they're shooting for, you know, and all productivity is, is trying to, um, you know, ultimately support life and living standards in some way, shape or form across a society. You know, there's a social function to this entire system that we study that we, you know, you know, or this organism or ecosystem that we sort of loosely describe in economic terms or social terms or behavioral terms or whatever. And that is all to try and support life, you know, and improve life and support life more efficiently and effectively um, you know the very property rights and legal environment that we enjoy um, especially in the more developed western world you know are largely on the on a whole world of predicates that underpin you know law and those predicates are common beliefs around largely the value of life you know which underpin most morality structures of, of societies and then property rights. You can either sustain your life via the income that you can earn. You go and grow a field of corn or you go and labor for someone else, or you can sustain and, you know, improve your life off the back of the capital or the, the income that, have, that you've earned and then saved over time and putting that capital to work. And so 
all of property rights, all of a lot of our common morality systems, which underpin, you know, the legal systems that we have. And obviously politics tends to be a little bit, you know, not helpful. <laughs> it's largely that cement bag on your back. Yeah. And one person's right is another person's obligation, right? So how do you construct a legal system and a society, a, a foundation for a social construct and the way we all interact where you minimize unfair or inefficient obligations, you know, because you're handing, it's, it's easy, you know, to, to hand out rights and determine we've got a right to this, this and everything else. But as a society, we've got to get our head around is, you know, what rights can we hand out that are, you know, and this is a shocking way of describing it, but what rights are affordable, you know, that come with a minimal obligation on everyone else or someone else, you know, what can be actually enforceable and delivered and what rights, you know, yeah. are we handing out that we can't actually afford and, and see half of the problem that we're in globally and in most com uh, countries is that we've made promises that we actually cannot fulfill. We've got obligations, you know, that are increasing um, day by day and most of which aren't really accounted for. Um, and that obligation burden is outstripping our capacity to actually meet them, you know, and, and collectively in the world what we have is an asset liability mismatch which is just on... I guess that's the tragedy of the... Um, socialist system which is fragmenting in front of us in that as you've quite correctly mentioned every right or promise is simultaneously an obligation and a liability and so that's not clearly understood by the citizenry which is why it's gotten to the extent that it's gotten to and that mismatch is you know increasingly being and we see that you know, tangibly when we look at pension funds, you know, and we see it tangibly also when we start to look at governments, for example, and look at the promises they've made out into the future and, and account for them, you know, just using standard accounting sort of practices and see that there's a massive sort of asset liability mismatch which is opening up across most of the world. Um, and we're hemorrhaging you know, that where we have a huge deficit of high quality assets because we've loaded, you know, our swimmers up with so much cement that they're struggling to swim very far anymore. Um, you know, it's harder to be productive in this world more and more. And this is why when, you know, from a practical economic sense, when you're looking at, you know, what are the limits of all of this and trying to gauge those markers of change and, as this system sort of progresses and evolves, you know, some of the most important things you, you look at and need to study is um, things like productivity. Where does it come from? How is that enabled? What are the trends and what are the drivers? Things like multipliers, so multipliers uh, to action and certain types of action, you know, so fiscal stimulus, the, the multipliers to government spending, um, multipliers to credit and credit creation, you know, for every new dollar of credit that comes into the system, you know, how is that ultimately multiplied through the system into productive activity? You know, there's all sorts of things. And then velocity. So when liquidity is in the system 
and or created by the system you know what's the circulation rates and all of this sort of thing and you know productivity multipliers and velocity especially are, are kind of very crucial um, to being able to identify those tipping points and those changes in regimes because at lower levels of say you know the the baggage in the system so we have a productive economic system that is able to move forward and produce and be effective at creating assets and all this sort of thing you know sustainable productive assets at some point in time you know increased regulation increased policy action increased debt loads all of this sort of stuff is going to cause those productivity multiplier and even velocity type dynamics to eventually you know, hit a saturation point and even start to, you know, diminish to the point of even turning negative, you know, where every new dollar of, say, government spending actually is, you know, reduces overall activity, you know, any new measure of financial repression that our central banks induce eventually will see a multiplier type effect that is actually not even neutral, but even negative you know and we're kind of potentially tipping into that already um especially where a lot of the different measures and trying to get my head around what velocity and demand for liquidity and all of this sort of thing is doing is actually you know kicking well and truly into the negative around most of the world or most of the major systems in the world um and so you know tying all this back to where we kind of started talking about libor you know, looking at the TED spread, the, the LIBOR rate over the Treasury equivalent, you know, and watching how that's been tightening and watching what's happening in swap markets and all of this sort of thing, watching the broader aggregate measures of liquidity in the world and, you know, defined in many different ways, everything from M2 through to commercial system, you know, banking system assets through to central bank assets through to different sector flows of liquidity and all of this sort of stuff and the way that liquidity is either expanding or contracting and then also its circulation rates and the demand for cash, the, the demand for safety, the demand for uh, liquidity and the demand for the existing stock of high quality assets in the system. It kind of all paints a very similar and tightening um, dynamic of broader global liquidity and also then the capital flows in the world which one of the biggest drivers of the longer term capital flow situation in the world especially over a multi-decade sort of basis are policies and policy measures taken in most of the major sort of economies in the world like in the US and in China and all of this sort of things that artificially manipulate you know savings and investment imbalances right which cause balance of payment sort of stories to in, ensue and imbalances to persist causes capital to then by default or by definition flow differently um, and when those imbalances are artificially caused and sustained um, then those capital flows you know persist longer than they would otherwise and you know we have all sorts of fundamental economic activity in different economies materially having to change their nature and structure and character and all of this sort of thing and 
And so those capital flows are also another element of that lifeblood of the system, you know, that sustain and supports those broader liquidity pools in the world and, and it, obviously the circulation impacts and all this sort of thing. And what we're basically seeing is the last major multi-decade capital flow cycle, we're seeing it reversing. And we've been seeing it reversing for the last few years. And, you know, practically, you know, we're seeing globally a, a non-performing loan cycle that is still escalating. And at least most things I look at tells me that it's highly likely to continue to escalate, which is just another you know more tangible manifestation of that collateral destruction in the world or high quality assets deteriorating the quality factor is you know assets in the world are not productive high quality assets in the world are not being created anymore in fact it's stagnated if anything it's shrinking uh, even further and it's complicated and, and hastened even more by central banks around the world retiring a lot of high quality assets um so do, just on that point, let's talk a little bit about that sort of monetary policy. If we, the other side of that coin, if, if you were to look at it from that perspective, and the implementation of QE and even swap lines, in fact, most all monetary policy initiatives since the GFC have been and continue to be credit-based. It's one of the things that we've been looking at. Mm. Now, in simple terms, I guess so that listeners can hopefully understand this fairly easily, um, if you, Daniel, and I had a business together and we issued credit, i.e. bonds, and we collateralized those with the business, mm. if we had any additional issuance of credit, that needs to take place only with a commensurate increase in the underlying collateral being our business. Otherwise, the quality of the credit declines, increasing its risk, right? Yep. And that increase in risk is associated with our new newly issued credit, in theory, would carry a higher interest cost in order to come in, compensate the lender or buyer of those bonds. Now, that's not what we've seen in terms of um, QE being credit-driven, naturally, and then the actual underlying collateral, as you've just been mentioning, has been collapsing. And so it's not so much aggregate numbers, really, that are most important, but ratios, right? Yeah, and the quality aspects of it, because past a point, you know, the, the more credit we issue, which other people would see as an asset, right? Mm -hmm. um, the quality of which and the, is just going to fall through the floor. Um, and see, this is the thing. Like the more basically monetary policy and almost government policy is just propping up and enabling poor stewards of capital in the system. You know, it's it's enabling and sustaining and even promoting um, the mal allocation or mal investment of capital um, throughout the entire system and even in the US if you just narrow it down to the US it's a good little example you know people are surprised at the length of this um, you know economic cycle so to speak or the in the in the US and the persistency of you know some measures of employment um, and realistically you know and even starting back to our conversation where you're talking about the uh, gentleman who was able to borrow at LIBOR plus you know two percent having a cost of capital at zero or near zero you know artificially held too low will benefit 
you know, all of those people who can access those capital markets and larger business. Now that will basically enable those investment structures in an economy, those business operations to persist and fund themselves longer than they perhaps should be able to, right? Now that translates basically simplistically into a situation where employment is going to be able to be sustained for longer than it should in an in a quantity or an absolute type sense. Right, which if we were going to pick a country that's kind of Japan post the crisis, right? Precisely. But what, you know, you take the cost of capital to zero and, and you know, play games with bailing out certain sectors of an economy at, at the expense of others, you know, with QE and whatever. You take cost of capital to zero um, and you're sustaining and promoting malinvestment in the economy, right? And so overall productivity is going to start to fall and wane and which basically means the return on capital is going to start to approach zero as well over time. It will deteriorate because the economy is becoming less productive. But that by definition, you know, is a deterioration in incomes or income quality, right? And so on the, what we're seeing is a sustaining of you know, the, the number of people that are employed in the US, it's still sustaining, just like in Japan, but the income quality and the real purchasing power of those incomes is deteriorating with the deteriorating productivity picture. Also, I guess one of the things to understand would be that that income is tied to a business which is inherently more unstable and inherently more risky. And so the if you were to call it the quality of that income, um, which an income stream is also an asset. Mm. So the quality of that income stream is inherently more risky than it might otherwise be. So if we're in a practical circumstance, it would be contrasting, say, oh, I don't know, um, BHP, the, the ability for BHP to sustain itself and stay alive as a company, contrasting that to, Joe Sixpack's flower shop in the corner store, right? Um, the quality of, of or the ability for his corner shop to sustain itself through multiple cycles is likely a whole lot tougher than it is for BHP, you know, all things sort of remaining equal. So inherently, as, as you're actually attempting to sustain those incomes or sustain those businesses, you're increasing the, in the, the underlying leverage or risk in those businesses because you're not allowing the market mechanism to actually take care of what it needs to take care of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're enabling poor stewards of capital and um, penalizing more productive or better stewards of, of capital and the very lifeblood of the system, which depends on, you know, having some form of integrity to market mechanisms to allocate capital and resources and, you know, this whole supply and demand story, you know, to productive and sustainable sort of allocations is fundamentally impaired. So, how so do when we look at it all, it's, it's that actual capacity to, for the overall system to produce and create productive assets is, um, is getting hammered. Due to the length of the conversation, I have split this into two segments and next week, I will publish part two of the conversation with Daniel, where we delve into the derivative market, amongst other things. 
I hope you join me for the rest of that conversation next week. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at. Thank you.